0: Welcome to the e commerce fuel podcast, the show dedicated to helping six and seven figure store owners build amazing companies, outgun the competition, and make more money. I'm your host and fellow e commerce entrepreneur, Andrew Udarian. Hey, hey guys, it's Andrew here, and welcome to the e commerce fuel podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. And today on the program, I'm joined by Pep Laya from conversionxl.com. And if you're in e-commerce, which of course you probably are listening to this, you've undoubtedly heard of Pep. He is the uh, founder of ConversionXL.com, which is one of, if not the most well-regarded and respected conversion blogs uh, online. So puts out a ton of great content there, runs a conversion agency. So he really is in the trenches and knows this stuff and also holds an annual conversion meeting and event, ConversionXL in Austin every year. And we sit down and talk conversion, talk a lot of different things, discuss why conversion rates have been sliding for a lot of e-commerce stores over the last last, you know, two, three, four years. And part of it's due to mobile, part of it's due to something else, which we get into. We talk about the approach when you should and shouldn't A-B test. A lot of people think you should be testing all the time. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to, we cover what the most crucial things for an e-commerce store to focus on from a conversion aspect are. Dive into a lot of different things as well as talk about his upcoming event in Austin. So I'm going to go ahead and get right into it with Pep Laya from XL. <music> people always talk about how you have to be split testing, you know, split test, split test, split test. It's it's kind of this mantra, but you came out recently with an article that talked about maybe why you shouldn't be A-B testing, you know, times when it doesn't make sense to do that. Can you talk about when you should be pulling back and, and maybe not be diving headlong into that approach?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. So with A-B testing, we are trying to understand whether there's a significant difference between different variations of a web page, and in order for us to understand whether there is a difference or not, we need data samples, and we are only able to tell if there is a difference if the, the sample size is big enough. So low traffic websites, unfortunately, just don't have enough transaction volume, basically we won't have enough evidence to know one way or another. So if you have less than, broadly speaking, 1000 transactions per month and the transaction could be either purchases or whatever you want to test like it can be also email um, sub- subscriptions if you have less than 1000 it's probably too early for you to test yes you could get away with less transactions for a successful A-B test but then that the treatment needs to win by a huge margin like let's say 30 percent better or you know more because uh, if, if the treatment is better by 4% and you only have like 200 transactions in each variation, then you don't have enough data to know whether it actually is better. So hence my advice that if you don't have enough transaction volume, you're better off investing your energy in other things, like improving your overall service or you know, figuring out your customer acquisition channels, building traffic, stuff like that.
0: So Pep, when you don't have enough conversions like you're talking about to really dive deep into split testing, how can, you, how can you cheat a little bit? What kind of things can you do that can kind of give you some of the similar insights, but without maybe the cost and, and the time of running all those split tests?
1: A-B testing is for validation, whether something worked or didn't. So we have two unscientific ways to kind of do the same but with less validity. Now, before we run a test, we should uh, know what the problem is that we are trying to fix. So whether we're doing A-B testing or one of those other things I'm about to tell you, you know, you need to do your research first, your qualitative, quantitative, and so on. So you would know, you know, where the problems are, where people are dropping off and why they're doing it. So essentially, beforehand, you, you need to identify like a list of highly specific problems that you're now trying to solve and you validate uh, the, the solution through A-B testing. So when you can't A-B test because you don't have enough transaction volume, one thing you can do is that you implement a solution to those identified problems all at once. So let's say you you figured out 100 problems, Your the clarity of your value proposition was poor, your product images were low quality and maybe not clickable, your, um, your add-to-cart was too small, and you know, so on and so forth. So all these problems that you identified, and now you want to fix them. So you fix all of those problems at once. And then you go to your digital analytics tool, whether it's Google Analytics or whatever, and you want to see a lift, a change in your results, basically overnight. So if you had 100 transactions per week now you want to see 130 or 140 transactions per week you need to see a lift at least 20 or maybe 15% or bigger in order to know that the changes that you made actually had a positive impact if it's like 10% or less you really don't know because that's just noise and regular traffic fluctuation and all that stuff so that's that's one thing just change everything once at once and hope for a 20% or bigger lift in uh, transaction count. Number two would be that you you set up an A-B test like you normally would. But in, in addition to measuring the final transactions and revenue, you also start measuring all the micro conversions. So let's say you, you run a test on your product page. So you measure clicks on the Add to Cart button and you m- measure each funnel step, the cart checkout page uh, step one, two, and so on and so forth. And so now you run the test uh, maybe for four four weeks, 28 days. And at the end of the 28 days, maybe you have uh, like 60 versus 70 transactions. So not enough evidence to know whether the treatment is actually better. But now you look at the micro conversions. Hey, so we have 30% more add to cart button clicks at a very high count, maybe thousands or, or high, hundreds. And then also, like uh, more people or um, you know more people get to the checkout, start filling out the, the, the form. So then you can use those micro conversions as indicators that. So even though I don't have enough evidence to know that it's better, but micro conversions are also all up. So it's probably better. It might not be, but it's probably better. Or at least it's maybe maybe it's not worse. And if you run your A-B testing with, um, with a VWO, with Bayesian statistics, they'll also tell you the probability of a loss. So they'll measure two things, not just that how confident we are that we have a winner, but how confident are we that it's at least no difference. So it's safe to implement it no matter what.
0: Yeah, so really what you're doing is you're just kind of looking at the metrics that have the most impact on your conversion rate going upstream to get a larger sample size so you can be more confident.
1: Exactly right. But again, this is highly unscientific. (laughs) And you're going to get stuff wrong. Like sometimes all your micro conversions are up, but it actually has negative implications on your bottom line. Because, you know, imagine you put everywhere signs, free beer, free beer, free beer, and they get to the final page and there is no free beer, they have to pay for it. So the micro conversions are all up, but uh, final transactions are, are down because they're pissed at you
0: what percentage of either big site redesigns or migrations things like that do you see taking kind of the change everything at once approach and see how it works out cuz that's historically that's that's what i've done just because thinking through like you talked about thinking through well from our side just more more so that like testing you know, let's say you're changing 30 or 40 or if not 100 different things on your website, trying to isolate the impact each one of those has individually is a really time-consuming process. So what percentage of the redesigns that, that you do for clients is a change everything and see how it impacts the bottom line versus a let's test everything we implement and see how that independently affects the outcome?
1: No, a, a radical redesign where you change all of the website is extremely risky. And often, I would say 50% of time backfires, meaning in most cases, I would say in 60, 60, 70% of cases, there's no difference whatsoever in conversion rate. So you spent all the time developing and designing and wasted all the time and money for nothing. Or in you know another maybe like 20% of cases that conversions actually go down. And this is where the changes were made because of, silly reasons, you know, oh, we need some, you know, fleshy sliders and we need some other random ideas I read about in a blog post, you know. Radical redesigns need to be managed and done extremely carefully. You, again, start with proper research because you want to figure out which bits of your websites are actually working and which are not working. So the layouts that are working, you want to keep the same. You might do a facelift, but what goes where is the same. Whereas some pages where it's really performing poorly, you want to completely rethink. So like for instance, on your cart page, the average is that it's a 50% drop-off in the funnel. So if your cart is 30% drop-off, that means it's good. So you don't want to change that. Or if it's it's an 80% drop-off on your cart page, you absolutely want to change everything about that page because that page sucks. And so on. So you use these average benchmarks. You know, you're like... Your product page add to cart ratio, you know, 10% is pretty typical. So if it's much lower than that, it's crap. If it's much higher than that, it's it's good. And so on and so forth. And of course, it's all very contextual, depends on what you're selling and how expensive it is
0: and so on. You just said it's contextual. And so completely understanding that it varies based on industry, varies based on pretty much every unique business and situation, but mm-hmm. inevitably... I and I know other people listening are saying, "Well, what 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 are the averages? Give me some averages." So you said ten percent. Could you give me a sense of like what going through the funnel, maybe from homepage to product? Well, maybe we can take a product page down to the checkout. Can you give us a sense of product page to add to cart to starting to check out to all the way through? What percentage you're seeing, and so people can get a sense of that, and maybe also mm. what, you know kind of some so, of those average uh, metrics.
1: Every every single page has one goal. Every single page has one goal. So a goal of a category page is to get them to click on a product page on a category page. That's what you measure. And on a product page, it's uh, add to cart click. So on an add to cart click, uh, typical is 10%. So if, if less than 10% click on the add to cart button, it has room to grow probably, and if, if it's like 15%, you're doing fine on the cart page, 50%, Advancing to checkout from the cart is um, the average typical. So if you if you do less than that, it's, you're in trouble. If you do more, congratulations. And in the checkout now, there is no correlation really between checkout steps and performance. You know, like I have seen seven and six step checkouts work extremely well, and one step checkouts that perform terribly, and vice versa. So rather, I would say that don't focus on the number of steps here but rather on the percentage of people dropping out once they get to the checkout. Because now they're, they should be pretty motivated, right? Because they found the product, added it to the cart, confirmed that they want to start checking out. And now it's about filling in their data and stuff. So 90% plus is highly possible. So I would say that if in your checkout, you know, like under 80% of people are, are um, completing the purchase, there's something wrong. And that's good news because that means that there's a huge possibility for your business to do better. And you know, it might be that the checkout has you know terrible usability and whatnot. Possible. It also might have to do with their motivation or fears, like basically the em- emotional side of what's going on in- inside their mind, and also you know distraction, external distraction. So on mobile phones, you see bigger drop-offs because they're more easily distracted. You know, because they might be uh, driving or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, those are kind of the averages.
0: Pep, you mentioned, you know, how conversion rates change a lot over mobile to desktop. And one thing, you know, I've seen in my own business, one thing I think is happening to a lot of other store owners because I've heard this from them is... Uh, especially here in the U.S., is this slow erosion of e-commerce conversion rates over the last four to five years. And part of that, you know, if you look at the break, part of that's due to this explosion in mobile traffic, right? Like people just almost every mobile site or mobile conversion rate for, for store owners I've talked to is well below the desktop Mm -hmm. Average, right? And depends uh,
1: what you sell, but yes, in most cases, that's true.
0: Yeah, and so which makes sense. That makes sense. But you would expect to see, let's say, if you have a a fixed pool of people, they're moving from shopping on desktop to mobile, and maybe some of them purchase on mobile, but maybe a lot of them just find your your site on mobile and then they come through and convert on desktop because it's easier. That's a theory a lot of people have, and you would assume that if that's the case, your mobile conversion rate, okay, it's going to be lower, but you're going to see likely an increase on the desktop side for the conversion rate because you have more people coming kind of further down in the purchasing process. They come to you, they purchase more quickly without visiting two or three times to learn. But that's not what I've been seeing and what other people have been seeing. Have you been seeing this in kind of the clients Mm -hmm. you're looking with? And if so, do you have any theories on where these shoppers are leaking out of? Are they going to Amazon's mobile site? Is it just what's happening there? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So I think there are two, you know, yes, I, I have seen this uh, and have had many, many discussions with my colleagues and, and clients about it. So there are two underlying trends that I think we can blame, or three even. One is that there's just so many more e-commerce stores around. So there used to be a way less, but now anybody can go to Shopify and just open one that looks pretty decent, you know, overnight and start selling. The money is distributed among a bigger range of uh, online stores. Also, when we look at the really big online stores, let's like say Amazon, and you look at their annual revenue growth, whether globally or in the US, and it's growing by the billions every year. So it used to be you know, 20 and now it's 25 billion. So where did that five extra 5 billion come from? Well, from all the other stores. So Amazon is eating everybody's lunch, and it's true. You know, because with Amazon, people are not doing price comparison, stuff like that, because, you know, one click and you have it, you know? Like, you you don't even need to fill out a form. I personally don't shop in any small businesses because I I just hate putting in my credit card data, my address. Like, I have it in my Amazon. Why would I bother? So that's that's two. And three is the number of... um, the mobile traffic that has exploded, it it has brought in more people using the internet. So especially in the poor income classes where they might not have a desktop or a laptop computer at home, but everybody has a smartphone and they're surfing. And uh, you know, so that kind of more people, less purchases brings your average conversion rate down, even though your absolute numbers might not be down.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I'd love to see. I'm sure we will see some kind of technology like Apple Pay, but in a browser. So because right now you can use it, but you have to have your own app. If we see that come over to a browser, and also some kind of technology making it easier for for e-commerce store owners to, to capture lead, you know, capture an email address or something like that on the mobile version, and then convert them more on the desktop.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I would encourage all e-commerce. Um site owners to to ex- experiment more with alternative payment methods other than credit card, like Amazon payments, stuff like that. Where, you know, like somewhere where my address and my credit card is already stored. When we've experimented with a number of payment options on a site, so two always kicks one at one's ass, like basically adding PayPal to credit card already makes it better. And adding a third one typically makes it even better. And if you had to add a fourth and fifth one, well now it's like sometimes it gets better, sometimes it gets worse. In Europe that's you know, complicated because in, in Europe you have a, a plethora of payment systems. People want to you know, pay with their bank essentially and so on. So, so we've done some experimentation there.
0: Yeah, we actually just got done adding Amazon Payments to our Shopify flow, and uh, probably ten percent plus of people pick Amazon Payments for which, which you know makes sense. Everyone's got, despite <laughs> everyone's got an Amazon account set up.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think the more people, the more stores add that as an option, the more people start using it. I think it's still in its infancy. I think more people will start using it once they experience how you know convenient it really is.
0: You had a great article on on the ultimate guide to increasing e-commerce conversion rates. And we'll link up to that in, in the show notes. It's, it's worth a read in its entirety. Um, would you mind mentioning just kind of the lead on that? What are the the two to three biggest things an e-commerce store owner can focus on to increase conversion. Obviously with the caveat, everyone, you know, everyone's situation varies. You gotta test it on your own, but forcing you to go back into the to the the broad sweeping generalizations, what are those two to three biggest things people should be really hammering on?
1: Yeah. Well if your product is at all about the design, like clothing, shoes, flowers, whatnot, images is the key thing. People don't read the copy, the product description. They'll look at the product photo. When, whenever I'm working on an e-commerce site, putting an emphasis on, on photos, the quality and the size, the bigger the better, and, and the quantity, like how many basically different photos per product you have. So that's, that's like a surefire deal. Even with one of our clients, uh, Diamond Candles, selling scented candles. You know, You buy it because it smells good. Bigger images increase sales. You know, so like it's just people people are visual, you know, because when, when you when you look at the how our brain is constructed, we have the the old the reptilian brain and that processes visuals, it can't read, can't understand text, and that's the decision making part of the brain. So I would I would put visuals above all and same goes for like category pages. Having bigger thumbnails and less products on a row, typically makes a difference, a positive difference. So that that's one big thing. And of course, not all products are visual. Other things that are really easy, low, low-hanging fruits, and most e-commerce sites that I see are not doing it, is communicating maybe three key reasons to buy from you on key pages where people land. Because people usually put their, maybe, maybe they put their value proposition on their homepage. But if you look at your top landing pages and when you group category and product pages into uh, groups, you, you'll get way more traffic landing on your product and category pages than on your home page. So if people and people who are landing on your category and, and, and product pages are probably searching for something specific and your SEO kicked in or your or your PPC ad. So they're looking for something specific, they find it on your site, they land on your page and the only thing you say is, I have this Nike shoe, it's like 50 bucks, buy well, that is every other store saying the same stuff. So if what you sell is not unique, and even if it is, you need to have on those pages uh, near maybe in a prominent position, maybe you know, on a category page before the products, in you know, a product page before the add to cart, basically three bullet points or or can be a horizontal line of three key reasons why I should buy from you and not the other guys. We have free shipping. We've been in business since 1977. Ergo, you can trust us, and with uh, you know five million customers, you know social proof. You know you're not the only idiot buying from us. So, or or whatever the case, you you have to know who your competitors are and what are the actual three reasons to buy from you. And if you don't know, of course, you've got a, a whole new
0: set of problems. But one thing I've been uh, focused a ton on this year is not blindly optimizing for conversion rate, but rather optimizing for profit. And is that something you guys focus on? Does it, does it vary based on each customer or each client that you have? And if so, let's say, let's say you are taking the profit based approach. What kind of metric do you use? I've kind of settled on a profit per visitor one that can kind of cuz there's a lot of, when you start t- testing for profitability, you got all these different moving parts in terms of well, okay, yeah, your conversion rate goes down, but then you got to measure the increase in profit, but then you also have to control for maybe, you know, different visitors and different seasonality. What do you optimize around? Is it just conversion rates? And if it's not, what metric do you use?
1: So for e-commerce, conversion rate is definitely not the uh, the final godly metric to worship. Because then you slash your price is in half and your conversion rate will go up, but you'll make less money. So conversion rate is just an indicator. Revenue per visitor is already a better indicator because then you can optimize for um, higher cart value, uh, you know, stuff like that. You, they'll, they'll buy uh, more expensive products and you'll make more money. So revenue per visitor, which is easy to measure and track with a, with a testing tool or Google Analytics is already better than conversion rate. Now, of course, profit is even better. So the tricky part with measuring profit is that not every store has their, I don't even know what's the polite way of saying it, has their together. <laughs> uh, the, the analytics implementation is lacking. That's basically. People don't want to invest in analytics implementation, even though it is so important. I encourage everybody to spend money on analytics, and I'm not selling analytics, so I'm, I don't have a dog in this race. So, what you can do, you know, first of all, you need to use enhanced e-commerce. You know, you get a whole these all new metrics that you can see, and when you're running A/B tests or whatever you you're changing. You always analyze the results in Google Analytics, not the testing tool. So all the testing data should be integrated with Google Analytics and you, you look at uh, different metrics across different variations in your analytics tool. So custom dimensions and all that great stuff. So maybe you guys have heard of the terminology single source of truth. Because you know, we a typical, especially a small business owner is the well, I have my you know visitors data here, and then uh, the purchase data there, and then the CRM is a third system, and you know, so I have different data in different places, and putting them together is really don't know how to do it or whatever, or it's expensive. So you can't really do that with Google Analytics. Of course, there are much more sophisticated enterprise level tools for that, like R J Metrics and and whatnot. But with Google Analytics, if you get a Google Analytics implementation guy, he can. Um, add this custom information for every product that is in there, which is your profit margin per product and all that stuff. And all that rich information can be available in Google Analytics um, for you. And so if you have that, now you can really optimize, as you said, for for profit.
0: So, sorry, just to clarify, are you saying because profit per item, that's not currently supported by Google Analytics, is it?
1: You can uh, add any custom data into your analytics that you want. Really?
0: Okay. So, but it's probably so.
1: Basically, you need to be using Google Tag Manager, and through Data Layer, you inject all kinds of information onto your page as you want. Whether it's your, uh, you know, basically your product uh, taxonomy, and your product can have you know individual uh, profit margin information in in there already.
0: Yeah. Do you think we're going to see that at some point be kind of a native feature of Google Analytics? Because they've already got, you know, conversion rate by product and a lot of these more product oriented things. But out of the box, it doesn't seem super easy to to assign a profit per item.
1: Yeah, you should budget like, you know, depending on who who you're going to get, but basically uh, 10 to 25k to get this stuff all uh, implemented with an expert. So yeah, I think it will come available. Maybe it will go to Google Analytics Premium first because they're they sure are pushing that one more now. And also the the new A B testing tool coming out, Google uh, what's it called Google Convert or that that's also gonna be a premium product first and foremost. And yeah, so far I would recommend find an affordable analytics implementation guide. Get get it set up.
0: Uh, Pep, you had a uh, a conference last year down in Austin, Conversion XL Live, sounded like it went really well, and you've got one coming up uh, March thirty first to April first this year in two thousand sixteen in Austin or just outside of Austin rather. sounded like a fantastic event. I unfortunately wasn't able to make it, but I, I had hoped to. Can you talk a little bit about how last one went last year and what people can expect if they're thinking about coming this year?
1: Hmm. Well, Conversion XL. Live is a unique event in the sense that it's happening in the middle of nowhere. So it's one hour outside of Austin, Texas, and it's an all-inclusive event, meaning your, your ticket to the conference also includes two hotel nights, all meals. So everybody stays in the same place for three days, two nights. Nobody leaves. So that creates the best networking you can imagine because like everybody's just there doing everything together. And so it's so much fun, great parties. And of course, the content is just hands-on practitioners only, really kick-ass people, mostly focused on conversion optimization, kidding, squeezing more money out of your, uh, your visitors and how to do it, how to... We have a day one is our psychology and persuasion, understanding people's mind, Uh, Day two will have on um, just the process of A-B testing and optimization and and day three will have uh, more like traffic, analytics, personalization, retention, uh, stuff like that. So all things very, very relevant to uh, e-commerce people.
0: And Pep, for someone who's maybe... You, knew, you do agency work as well, taking on e-commerce clients, of course. For someone who's maybe thinking, oh man, this Pep guy knows what he's talking about. I don't have time to do this. I want to hire him to come on and, and help me out. Who's a good fit for your agency? Like, Who do you work with? What kind of e-commerce store potentially is kind of uh, someone that would make sense for them to maybe give you a call to uh, potentially talk about working together?
1: Mm-hmm. So we run a lot of A-B tests. We do like done-for-you conversion optimization, so it's it's hands-off for the client, and we run a lot of A-B tests. And in, in order to run tests, you need to have the transaction volume to traffic. So as somebody, a good fit is somebody who whose annual revenue is more than $10 million and who has thousands of transactions per month. So that's kind of the, the starting point, because uh, really that's where we can do you know a lot of the fun stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Pep, it's been a blast having you on talking this kind of stuff. If you're interested in, in either Pep's agency work or Conversion XL Live, you can learn out. Learn more about both of those the blog and the agency at conversionxl.com. And for the live event, that's live.conversionxl.com. Pep, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew.
0: That's going to do it for this week. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to check out the eCommerce Fuel private forum, a vetted community exclusively for six and seven figure store owners. With over 600 experienced members and thousands of monthly comments, it's the best place online to connect with and learn from other successful store owners to help you grow your business. To learn more and apply, visit eCommerceFuel.com forward slash forum. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.